This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation, our show here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Nikolai Zikolko, a professor of management and co-director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management here at Wharton. I'm joined by my co-host, Shaika Chowdhury, executive director of the Mac Institute. Just a reminder, we are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and of course, the show replays a few times throughout the week. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, please give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Now, coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by Mike Gerber. He is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Philadelphia's FS Investments. But first of all, I'm thrilled to welcome now Melissa Schilling. Uh, Melissa is the Herzog Family Professor of Management at NYU's Stern School of Business. And she's the author of the new book, Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. Melissa, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Nikolai. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, Melissa, a lot of your academic work right, has used empirical studies, simulation works. What inspired you to study individuals sort of in depth and then write a whole book about them? You know, in a way, it was the failure of large-scale empirical work to answer those <laughs> questions. Uh-huh. You know, a few years ago, I did a study with Will Baumol that was a, and, and Ed Wolf that was a, a large sample empirical study of entrepreneurs and inventors. And we tried to collect biograph- biographical information on about 600 of them. And what we found is that when you try to do a large sample like that, you get very shallow information across all of them. You know, there's a few of them you can go deep on, but a lot of them you don't get deep information on. And so you end up with something that's rather unsatisfying when you're done. And I think it was 2010 when one of, you know, some of my students in my innovation class started asking, what's going to happen with Steve Jobs? If Steve, if Steve Jobs dies, will we, what will we lose at Apple? Will the innovation disappear? Or how much of the magic is in the man versus the organization? Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided to start studying Steve Jobs as a person. And then that evolved to become a multiple case study research project. And, and at the time, I didn't even, you know, I didn't know for sure that anything would come out of it, that I would discover anything systematic across the innovators or that I would be able to publish any of it. Uh, but it was worth doing anyway because it was just so interesting and such a compelling question. Uh, but in the end, it ended up being really illuminating because all of the innovators I studied had a tremendous amount in common. Yeah, so now you have going from 600 to 8, right? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's a challenge. Uh, so uh, eventually we came up with uh, Marie Curie, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin. We like, of course, that. Uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs, <laughs> Dean Carmen, Elon Musk, and Nikola Tesla which, of course, I like because of the first name. So uh, (laughs) how did you get to those uh, those eight? Well, the key thing was to take me out of the process because, as you know, if a a researcher picks out cases, they might be guided by some form of implicit bias. So what I did was set up a research protocol that would basically make the selections for me. Uh, I decided that I was only going to pick people that showed at the top of multiple most famous inventor or most famous innovator lists. So I started by scraping the tops of those lists. And then I subjected the people 
that were on those lists to a set of criteria that included uh, they had to be known for more than one major breakthrough innovation because if somebody is sort of a one-hit wonder, then you can't really disentangle the person from the context, right? They could have just been at the right time at the right place. But someone who's innovated their whole life and had multiple breakthrough innovations, then you can you can infer more that it has something to do with that person. So they had to have multiple innovations. They had to have multiple biographies written about them because you don't want to be unduly influenced by any particular biographer. And they had to have lots of firsthand account information from either either quotes from the innovator themselves, such as in interviews and letters, or quotes from family and friends, or, or both preferably, because you'd like to hear the innovator speak from their own words. And by the time I did that, it was a pretty small set, frankly. And, and unfortunately, there was only one woman in the set, which was really disappointing to me. But after I studied Marie Curie, I could I could see how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from from the set that was remaining, I just chose people that were from different time periods and across different technological areas, so that we wouldn't have, for instance, everyone associated with electrification or everyone associated with the computer revolution. Yeah. Well, what's sort of interesting that you went kind of beyond just sort of business innovation, right? Because um, clearly, it's just sort of some are. You know, Albert Einstein probably never had his own startup, but right. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> Uh, so, so what made you focus kind of so you broadened it beyond business, but you well, made sort of yeah. a decision not to go into like Beethoven, right, or, right. or kind of other other areas. So, so how did you kind of draw that boundary around the set of possibilities? You know, when I started this project, I envisioned uh, having Picasso and John Lennon and people like that mm-hmm. in the set. Mm-hmm. But I really quickly realized that there was an awful lot more disagreement about people like that. I mean, as soon as you move into a hedonic field like mm-hmm. art or music, uh, you you suddenly the consensus goes away about who belongs on the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And and there's also the issue that once you're famous in art or music, your subsequent work is far more likely to be heard and be famous also, which makes the whole serial breakthrough innovation a little bit harder to let's say verify mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but in science and technology the you know the outcomes were more i think more objective there's certainly much more consensus about who the most important breakthrough science and technology innovators are mm-hmm. and you know from a science and technology perspective einstein is clearly an innovator you know as mm-hmm. as much so as elon musk or someone like yeah. that yeah great so let's maybe go back to the title of the book no. Okay. So what are some of the quirky traits and foibles that you found in, in, in the set of these eight? Okay, so I'm going to admit, first of all, that I did not name the book quirky. <laughs> <laughs> the publisher named the book quirky. I know, I know. And at first I was, at first I was really worried about it because to me, some of these, some of these uh, traits or characteristics uh, are they're big, you know, uh-huh. they're big forces, yeah. they're big capacities, and so to me, a quirk sounds like something little, and um, so I, you know, I resisted at first. I was also really nervous about having the word trait in there because I don't know how much you follow the psychology research, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. trait is sort of the third rail in psychology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very careful. My title originally talked about characteristics, not traits, and I didn't use the word quirky, but. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the word quirky seems to have worked. A lot of people understand it and resonate yeah. with it. And, and I would say, you know, one of, the, one of the quirky traits that came out that was really surprising and turns out to be so interesting because it gives us a lot of insight into how to help people nurture their own innovative uh, potential is that a lot of them had this really strong sense of separateness, mm-hmm. meaning they felt a little disconnected from the social world around them or like they didn't belong to it or its rules didn't apply to them. And on the one hand, uh, this made some of them seem a little lonely or, or you know, definitely iconoclastic, but, but it also freed them 
to break with norms and to be unconventional and to challenge assumptions. And I think the, the one who talked the most about it is Albert Einstein. He, he talked at length about the fact that he felt detached from people, even from his own family. He loved humanity, but, you know, individuals not so much. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and he noted, though, that, it, that that was precisely what enabled him to be an independent thinker yeah. and to, you know, to, to not bow to the norms of the crowd. And he actually encouraged people. There's a nice quote from Einstein that says, be a loner, because that will enable you to pursue the truth. Yeah, well, it's so interesting you just mentioned this sort of on the one hand, maybe he didn't like individuals, but he liked society as a whole. And I think another finding that you had is that a lot of these people are really driven by some idealism, right? Some higher goals they really wanted to change. And so that's sort of an interesting tension, right? Between on the one hand, you said, so they're kind of detached socially at the same time, they're kind of driven by some higher goals. What do you make from that that tension? Well, so first let me just note that seven out of eight of them definitely were pursuing some giant idealistic goal, sometimes more than one idealistic goal, like Musk wants to get us to renewable energy and also colonize Mars to preserve our species because he believes that statistically it's a given that some cataclysmic event will destroy Earth, and the only way to preserve the species is to make sure that we are uh, also on another planet, which is a pretty big idealistic goal. Um, now, sometimes I wondered... And, you know, I've wondered this about Musk, for instance, because Musk, Tesla, and Einstein all at one point said something to the effect, or people said about them sometimes, that they they didn't really like, they like humanity, but they didn't really like people. Mm -hmm. And so uh, sometimes I've wondered what made them like humanity if they didn't like people. Uh, It it's really an interesting question, and if I ever get a chance, I'll ask Musk in person. Mm-hmm. Somebody else has asked him before if he really thinks we're worth saving, which, which is the <laughs> question that I would have asked him at one point. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, he, he definitely thought humans, th- there was something special about humanity and that we should be saved. Um, and, you know, he never said, I, I don't, I've never found a quote from Musk where he directly says he doesn't like people, but people have said that about him. Mm-hmm. Hi, Melissa. Saikat here. How are you? Good. How about you, Saikat? Good, good. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, these inventors and innovators that you look at, um, how much of them are shaped by nature and how much by nurture? Such an important question. This is something I really uh, was very interested in figuring out because that was sort of at the core also of the questions about Steve Jobs and whether or not there could be a successor. I'd have to say that if you want to put a really if you want to be very conservative about what you assume is nature, the one thing that was definitely nature for all of them is that they were extremely intelligent from a very early age, and most of them were noted for having exceptional memories. So both Nikola Tesla and Elon Musk, for instance, have photographic memories and can do advanced calculus and physics just in their head in real time. Uh, Both of them appear to have something called eidetic memory, which is this incredible visual memory. It's almost like being a uh, human computer-aided design system. You can design a machine and refine it and turn it and run it and adjust it and uh, and redesign it all in your head. Mm-hmm. And, ne- and then by the time, for instance, with Nikola Tesla, by the time he would put it into physical form, it was already perfect. I'm pretty sure that was nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nikola Tesla also had a number of signs of dopamine irregularities that uh, I think some of the other innovators might have too, and that's, that's nature. But there's also an awful lot of nurture, right? So, you know, a lot of them had... Uh, you know, a lot of them had interesting childhoods where they were encouraged to read on their own. Now, they might have chosen that anyway, but they definitely did spend a lot of time studying on their own. A lot of them resisted the structure of school or had almost no formal schooling. 
uh, idealism can come from both inside or outside, right? So maybe mm-hmm. people are born idealists. We don't know. But you can uh, certainly, you can also nurture people to be idealists, right? You can teach them to focus on larger ideals. And sometimes nationalism or religion have inspired idealism in people. Uh, self-efficacy is another interesting one. Mm-hmm. So all of these people had really, really strong self-efficacy where they had intense faith in their ability to overcome obstacles and achieve their goals. And what I find fascinating about that is you might not come across as a confident person generally. You might not have high general self-confidence, mm-hmm. and yet you could still have really high self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is a really powerful trait because it will make you more productive in a lot of different ways, more bolder in a lot of different ways. Now, I don't think we know exactly if there's a nature component to self-efficacy, but you can definitely encourage self-efficacy through nurture. So, for instance, you can help kids have early wins mm-hmm. by not rescuing them every time they encounter an obstacle and, you know, maybe standing back and saying, hey, I have faith in you. You're going to figure this out. You can do it and let let them solve it on their own. You can also, uh, people develop self-efficacy vicariously mm-hmm. by reading hero stories. So, for instance, when you read about someone that you can identify with, uh, overcoming their obstacles and achieving their goals, it teaches you something about yourself. So, uh, there's more examples in the book, but there's a, there's definitely a lot of ways we can nurture people to have this breakthrough innovation potential. But there also may be a nature component, at least in the eight people that I studied. So if we can actually spot and discover them, we can develop them into iconic leaders. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think I think one of the I got to say this: doing this project changed my parenting. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm in a generation of parents where kids tend to get scheduled to the hilt. You know, you want to put them in language class and have them take violin lessons and be on the soccer team, and you know, buying into all these ideas about cultivated uh, charisma and and make you making them be have good social skills. I mean, and I think social skills are extremely valuable, but I also think that some kids want to be loners and that. That should be okay too. That that a kid sure. who's not a joiner, for instance, or instance, or a kid who just wants to do things differently, the most important thing we can do is send them the message that they are great that way too, and that you can be successful and happy that way. And I think that's uh, one of the advantages a lot of the people in my book had is that they had families that basically let them be who they wanted to be. And you know, you're going to be happier. Whether you're a social person or a non-social person, mm-hmm. you're going to be happier if the world says, hey, that's okay, you're great the way you are, than to get the message that you need to change that. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zigelko, and I'm joined by my co-host, Saika Chowdhury, and we are speaking with Melissa Schilling, our author of the new book, Quirky. Now, Melissa, what I really find interesting in your book, that, of course, there's fascinating stories about the people, um, but... You're really moving from the characteristics or the traits of these people to more underlying mechanisms, right? Yeah. And I think that's sort of really the question of, right, what can we learn from these wonderful uh, geniuses, right, we as mere mortals? And uh, so can you tell us a <laughs> bit more kind of about these mechanisms? You just started along that line, but maybe you can flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the I'd say, most um, inspiring findings for me, at least, was that even if you don't have some of the traits some of these people have, you may be able to tap some of the same mechanisms to achieve innovation. So, for instance, some of these people were sort of naturally uh, introspective and, and, you know, Einstein and Elon Musk were both tested for deafness as children. They were that introspective. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Edison was actually deaf for most of his life. So, uh, but... 
but the thing we learned from them is that it was working alone, having downtime to think and read and write and reading voraciously that made them into the people they were. And we can do that no matter what our traits are, right? Like giving uh, employees or children downtime, uh, making people have time to work alone before they have to work in groups is extremely important. Like one, of the, one of the things that I ended up realizing, there's a ton of research showing that brainstorming groups do not work if what you're seeking are creative ideas because brainstorming groups end up producing less creative ideas, fewer ideas, and ideas of lower quality. Because the problem is when people come together in a group, first of all, they don't share their wildest ideas because they fear being judged. Mm -hmm. uh, they may also n have production blocking, which means when I'm talking, you're having trouble articulating your idea. You might even be having trouble thinking about your idea. I'm essentially hijacking your thought process when I'm talking. And then the third piece, which hasn't really been studied that much in the psychology literature, but you can definitely see it when you look at these innovators, has to do with concessions. And so that means that most people are, are conflict avoidant, which means if they're in a group and they bring up an idea and the rest of the group doesn't like that idea, or even if just one other person doesn't like that idea, they start making concessions and they start shaving down the corners of their interesting idea. So what you end up with is a mediocre compromise. And, you know, that could be fine if what you're looking for is some outcome about which there's a lot of consensus and just if, if what your goal is is smooth group relations. But if what your goal is is a breakthrough idea or really interesting innovation, then you need to let people work on their own first, and you need to encourage them to be wildly unfettered in their thinking and to not make concessions and to, to be willing to disagree. So how would that work in an organization? I mean, we've got certain goals in mind, usually, and commercial objectives and metrics to meet. How do we give them that space? What do we do organizationally to set up the right environment to nurture it? And then what do we do once we get those ideas to take them forward? Right. So sometimes, you know, there's been um, there's a fair amount of work coming out right now about the idea of letting people work alone first before you bring them together into a group. So you have people work alone and put their ideas down on paper and elaborate them and commit to them before they share them. And then when you have the sharing process, you avoid any consensus norms. You're, you don't have a vote. You don't try to bring everyone to agreement around a single idea. You might find clusters of people around different ideas and let them pursue those ideas simultaneously, uh, like on, on parallel paths. That's, that's what, for instance, they do at the CERN Large Hadron Collider in Europe, where they're working on trying to figure out the Big Bang and how the universe started. They encourage groups to disagree, and they let those groups continue to disagree and work separately on different solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, it also brings to mind, uh, you know, Google giving their creative people 20% time or 3M giving their people 15% time when they're supposed to spend time working on projects of their own choosing. Uh, that's very valuable. Not everybody wants that and not everybody wants to, it will take full advantage of it. And it certainly can be costly. It might not feel efficient, but it's an excellent way to encourage breakthrough innovation. And it's where Gmail came from. It's where Post-it notes came from, uh, which where Google News came from. So that can be really powerful. Makes a lot of sense. So do you think breakthroughs come from the individuals and then trying to take it forward and commercialize it? Maybe next generation comes from teams? I'm trying to reconcile the knowledge that we have about teams doing innovation, which Google and like support as well, versus yeah. the individuals. You know, uh, this is a bit of a contentious area, but I <laughs> definitely believe, I, I believe the breakthrough idea 
comes from within an individual. Yeah. But it often takes a team to enact the idea, right? There may be problems that have to be solved to fully flesh out an idea that, that are going to be solved by other people in the team. Steve Jobs definitely needed his Wozniak, right? And mm-hmm. and Elon Musk needs a team of rocket science engineers around him. But Elon Musk came up with his idea of the reusable rocket on his own, and he actually sketched out the first prototype on his own. And he did it when the rest of the space industry said, you know, hey, kid, that's impossible. You are never going to do that because we have spent 50 years trying to do that, and it can't be mm-hmm. done. But he just shrugged his shoulders and said, I think I can do it, and he did it. You know, so I really think that um, – I mean, it's it's – it's interesting. I think we, there's a lot more research to be done in this area, but I fundamentally think an idea must be conceived of in the mind of a person. Mm-hmm. And whether an idea, you know, somebody can influence you in your idea, and some ideas certainly come about through a group process where we interact and, and ideas have sex. That's the, the expression some people <laughs> use. But I think that um, the thing is when multiple, when multiple people are working together, the odds of them all being extreme in the same way are slim, which means for them to come to an agreement probably means they've come to the center of different, of, of different extreme paths, if that makes sense. The really extreme ideas come from individuals. And too many of those are not good either, right? Yeah, they're they're not all good, for sure. Definitely not. And then also, remember, ideas are not nearly enough. Most ideas are just wisps of thought that disappear, you know, as very rapidly. It's it's people who have this dogged persistence, this intense tenacity, and a willingness to work extremely hard, even in the face of criticism and failure. Those are the people that have a chance of bringing their ideas to life. And on top of that, there's also right time, right place elements. So... Every single innovator I looked at, you know, there were things about the the time when they were working and there were things about the resources they had access to. I will say it was almost never money. Money was never the crucial resource for these innovators. It was usually some form of expertise that they had access to. Sometimes, you know, Marie Curie had Pierre Curie's electrometer, which was hugely important. Steve Jobs had not only Steve Wozniak, but Hewlett Packard and other people in Silicon Valley to help him enact his ideas. Um, Elon Musk was uh, surprisingly self-sufficient on on, develop, on coming up with his first rocket prototype, but then immediately sought out other rocket science experts to help him refine his ideas. Great. So now we know the title of your next book, where, where Ideas Have Sex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, so you said the ideas come from individuals, and... Uh, so now I'm, I'm sitting there running a company and ask, okay, so now should I try to hire these geniuses who come up with these ideas? And of course, your book also tells us that these guys are not doing really well in structured environments, <laughs> like yeah. schools, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, so um, are they just destined to become entrepreneurs? Like Elon Musk said, you know, no one would hire me, so I'll just have to create my own company. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how often I have heard entrepreneurs say that they became entrepreneurs because no one would hire them or because they couldn't stand to be run by somebody, to have a boss. I've known numerous entrepreneurs like that. So there's certainly uh, something there about the need for autonomy. And you can imagine that someone who's been very independent and, and feels separate from the world and doesn't feel like its rules apply to them, that person may have difficulty uh, working under the supervision of others. 
But that said, a lot of these people start out, they need to work in companies, and, and there are brilliant people working, you know, contributing breakthrough idea innovations to companies. I think the most, the, the most useful example is the example of Steve Jobs applying for a job at Atari. So he showed up at Atari. He'd seen an ad that said, make money while having fun, which sounded good to him. So he showed up there, <laughs> you know, unwashed, dirty hair, dirty feet. He had really bad body odor because he didn't believe in, in showering very often. And he basically told the receptionist, I'm not leaving till you give me a job. <laughs> and, and she called back to Al Acorn and said, we've got a hippie kid in the lobby who says he's not leaving till we give him a job. Shall I have security throw him out? Now, at that moment, you know, Procter & Gamble or IBM would have clearly thrown him out, right? Mm -hmm. But Al Acorn said, no, send him back. And Steve Jobs goes back into Al Acorn's office. He puts his feet up on Al Acorn's desk, which is just outrageous, right? Just <laughs> really not, not in the guidebook of how to behave on your job interview. But has a conversation with Al Acorn that, that convinces Al Acorn that this is a really creative and insightful guy. And so he hires Steve Jobs. But then the trouble, the trouble is just beginning because it turns out Steve Jobs is hard to work with. He's abrasive. And again, he doesn't smell good. Mm -hmm. And people start complaining about him. So instead of giving him a warning or telling him to clean up his act or firing him, they create a night shift at Atari, and Steve Jobs was the only person on it. <laughs> now, I think what that story shows us is an incredible uh, tolerance for weirdness, an ability to say, hey, weird is okay, and we'll find a way to make it work. You know, in, instead of saying that... You know, people have to uh, adopt the norms of the company, and we're going to have all sorts of rules about around what's okay. We're going to find a way to uh, tolerate people's eccentricities and uh, understand that some of the most eccentric people are maybe where our biggest breakthrough ideas come from. And when you think about it, you know, a breakthrough idea always starts as a weird, unreasonable idea, right? Mm -hmm. And anything that is not weird or unreasonable is probably not something that's going to change the world. Something that's going to change the world initially is people are going to find it maybe a little bit uncomfortable. And these were definitely, a lot of these people were unreasonable people. You know, they weren't going to just go along to get along. They were going to stand up for their ideas and they were willing to be different. And we have to, if we can find a way to make room for those people in our organizations, then we're going to have more breakthrough innovation. Now, Melissa, there are a lot of weird and eccentric people around. So if I'm an HR manager, then uh, I have to also have the capacity to distinguish the brilliant ones that will actually have these impacts versus, you know, the average person who's just plain weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's probably true. I mean, um, and, the, you know, there's, there's going to be a fair amount of failure. And again, you know, breakthrough innovation isn't for every organization, right? Not every organization has enough slack or resources to, to make that kind of investment. Uh, you know, another thing, there's, there's another thing here. There's more than just being weird, though. These people also worked incredibly hard. They loved to work, you know, and part of it was because of the idealism, because they were, they were working for something bigger than themselves, something that was more important to them than money or leisure or sometimes even more important than their family or their health. Um, but they also just loved to work. So, like, if you look at Thomas Edison, he was not an idealistic guy. <laughs> I looked really hard for the idealism in Thomas Edison and, and finally found the quote where he says about himself, he's like, you know, I don't have those highfalutin thoughts. I keep pretty close to the ground. I'm a practical man. So he says flat out that he's not idealistic, but he loved the feeling of working hard. He said, work made the earth a paradise for me, and I never intend to retire. He just enjoyed it, and he worked longer longer 
hours than most of the people around him. And, and I have a great quote from Francis Upton, who worked with him, who said, you know, Mr. Edison just doesn't understand the limits of ordinary men because he has none. Mm-hmm. You know, basically saying Thomas Edison just is stronger and had more endurance than the rest of us. So I think if you have someone who's creative and also works intensely hard, uh, they're probably a good person to make a bet on. Yeah. So since we're here at the University of Pennsylvania, Melissa, you have to tell us your favorite Ben Franklin story as well. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about Benjamin Franklin, he was an outlier on the separateness piece. So he's the one an innovator in my group that uh, doesn't show this separateness. And I was perplexed by this. Right? He was charismatic and social and made a real effort to hone his powers of persuasion and his oration skills. And he, he organized groups of people like the Hunto. And, he, and, and I wondered about this. Why was this one innovator social and the others weren't? And then at some point, it became really clear why. And it's because uh, while about, you know, a, a fair number of Benjamin Franklin's innovations were technological, like bifocal glasses or charting the Gulf Stream or, or um, you know, catheters and wood stoves, a lot of Benjamin Franklin's innovations were social institutions. So he invented volunteer fire brigades and street sweeping organizations and a public li- library and the University of Pennsylvania. And these were all social organizations where the only way to create them and show their value was to have the cooperation of other people. So the only way for him to innovate was to be social and to get other pe- and to persuade other people to be involved. Uh, you know, compared to Marie Curie, you know, her, her, big innova- her biggest innovation is probably the discovery of radium. It glowed. You know, <laughs> you hold that up and it glows, and you don't have to get anyone to agree with you because it's, it's, it's undeniable yeah. just in, in itself. But, um, but Benjamin Franklin, he really honed the craft of getting people to cooperate in his innovations. Yeah. Wow, wonderful. Melissa, thank you so much for having joined us today uh, on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah, no, uh, a really nice book, Quirky. Um, Where can our listeners uh, go to keep up with you and your work? Well, okay, I have a website. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. My Twitter handle is at M-S-C-H-I-L-L-I-1, which is a really unintuitive uh, (laughs) Twitter handle, but it was uh, my name was already taken on Twitter, so that was what I was left with. Great. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. So we need to take a short break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll be joined by Mike Gerber. He's the executive vice president of FS Investments. I'm your host, Nikolai Zikulko, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 